Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Polar Times, the podcast that brings you science and stories from literally the coolest places on the planet. Hi everyone, you're here back with me, Jack Buckingham. It's a joy to be back. I hope you enjoyed uh, the Antarctica Day special. I had fun being on the other side of the mic for a change. But today I'm back uh, in my usual role, just uh, hosting with one guest, one lovely guest, who I had a lovely time chatting to. I said lovely twice then, but never mind. Um, yes, not only are they uh, a geologist and an earth scientist um, researching carbon cycling and um, the movement of carbon dioxide and methane through uh, the rivers and oceans and lakes in the Canadian high Arctic, but they are also perhaps the first one I've ever met, a science poet. So yeah, this person came to my attention, as I say in the episode, because they won the Apex um, Science um, Poetry Competition with a, a lovely um, a lovely poem which they they read out in the episode. Uh, they also had some success uh, with a very, quite a successful poem that has done the rounds. I've seen it in a few places, not least at COP26. So we talk all about that. We talk all about poetry and using that as a tool for science communication. It's not something that I really have come across a lot before. So we talk about how effective it is for that, but not just for science communication, also for how it can be used to like approach your science from looking at it in a new direction. And by blending the two mediums together, you get like a new perspective and new ideas from your science that you wouldn't have had in the first place. It was a yeah, super interesting talk, and I hope you think so too. Um, so yeah, here we go. Let's dive right in. All right, everyone, please welcome to the stage my lovely guest for today, Samantha Jones. Hi, Samantha. How's it going? Hi, great. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. It's a pleasure to have you on Polar Times. <laughs> So this is the first section of the podcast. We like to call it the icebreaker. It's where we get to know you, our guest. And as ever, my first question is, who are you and how did you come to Polar Life? Yeah, so my name is Samantha Jones. I go by Sam or Samantha. Um, I use she, her pronouns. Um, I have a background in the sciences, uh, first and foremost. I'm a geologist. I studied geology in university. And then when I returned to school later on, I started studying geography. And my first exposure to Arctic science was really in my undergrad when I worked with a co-supervisor who had a lot of um, history working with a geological survey in the north. And I was introduced to aspects of polar science with a geology focus at that time. And then later on, I really had this urge to return to the north and hopefully get to visit there rather than just look at data uh, remotely. And in my PhD, I've been fortunate to visit a number of times now. And of course, after that first visit and experiencing uh, the North, I was just absolutely hooked. So it was definitely a place that's calling me to come back and to get to know folks and participate. Nice. And so you're based in Canada right now at the University of Calgary in the geography department, working with Dr. Brent Else, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I'm at University of Calgary now. Um, I've lived in Calgary for a number of years, but I grew up on the east coast of Canada. 
um, where I did my undergraduate degree as well at Dalhousie in Halifax. And then I've moved out here um, about 16 years ago and I've been in Calgary ever since. Nice. Um, and is is the Arctic and the high north a kind of, is it something which kind of permeates like society and culture in Canada? Is it something that people talk about a lot or is it um, you know, kind of far away and distant. I know, like, I guess latitudinally it's the same as the UK, but we're a little island. <laughs> um, so, yeah, is it is it a big part of Canadian life? I think um, Canadians in general really pride themselves on being sort of a winter nation, um, talking about, you know, winter sports, um, living in the snow, all of those types of things. Uh, definitely, um go with the identity, I think, for a lot of people and, you know, also being in nature. Um, but I, I still think visiting the high north is a privilege in in Canada. I mean, there are a lot of folks who live there, um, but for people who live in the south, it can be very expensive to fly up north or travel up north. Many places are only accessible by air. Um, and even for people who are living up there, it can be very expensive to travel between areas. Um, so there's certainly a level of privilege associated with being able to go and visit that area for me. Sure. Okay. And that's, that makes it even more special every time, I suppose. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about your current research, if you'd like to. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, I'm studying carbon cycling. And so my, my background is in the geosciences, and I've done sort of classic geology, um, but also some oceanography. And this new project that I'm working on for the last five years um, really focuses on big picture, climate, environmental, and then draws from those other fields that I've worked in. And so I look at inorganic carbon cycling in the Canadian Arctic. I'm focused on carbon dioxide, CO2, and I'm really interested in the CO2 dissolved in natural waters. And so my study area is in a place called Ikalak-Tutiak in the territory of Nunavut, which in English is called Cambridge Bay. That's the town that's located there in the region. And I look at a connected lake and watershed, river and coastal ocean system. And I'm really interested in the movement of carbon dioxide in those waters between the landscape and the coastal ocean, and then also emissions to the atmosphere from the lake and river, and then uh, exchange um, at the at the sea air interface in the coastal ocean. Okay, so that's what you mean by carbon cycling. Just for those who don't know, that kind of movement of carbon through just the whole entire environment. Yes, the movement of carbon through the environment, and then with the inorganic piece, it's really focused on the carbon dioxide. You'll hear a lot of times people talking about carbon cycling um, in the organic carbon and biology, and there's a whole other you know side of carbon cycling so my my specific look is basically how carbon dioxide is moving back and forth between the different components of that system okay and how how does it move around the system if that's not a silly question <laughs> yeah so it's very interesting um there are a lot of looking at the system as a connected sort of spectrum of the lake river ocean provides a lot of interesting um context that you wouldn't see if you looked at just one of those uh, environments on its own. And so in if we start at the lake, um, lakes are often 
rich in CO2 compared to other environments. And so lakes are typically emitters of CO2 to the atmosphere. Okay, interesting. And you see a lot of talk about that um, with Arctic lakes as well as the landscape is changing and, and things are sawing, what's happening there. And so in the lake that I look at, which is called Grainer Lake, um, you have part of the season where the part of the year where the lake is ice free and then part of the year where the lake is frozen. And during the months when the lake is frozen, all of the gases are accumulating under that ice that's kind of capping it and isolating it from the atmosphere. And so you get this really neat buildup of gases under the lake ice. And then in the spring, when you have the melt season, those gases are both released from the lake to the atmosphere, but also enter the river and are flowing down towards the coastal ocean. And the area that I work in, the river stretch is actually only a few kilometers long between the lake and the ocean. So I can measure all of these different sites uh, really easily um, in a day or a couple of days where I can go back and forth between the lake and the river and the ocean and, and get a picture of what's happening almost simultaneously. And then in the ocean, you end up having seasonal variations where at certain times of year, uh, you might be releasing CO2. Other times of year, you might be um, taking up CO2 from the atmosphere. It depends on a lot of different things, what's being input, what the biology is doing, um, mixing and all those sorts of things. And then you also have the complexity of sea ice there, which melts um, seasonally in this area. And then you end up with this freshwater cap uh, that gets released every year into the into the Cambridge Bay water. So there are a lot of really interesting carbon cycling pathways and factors that are all happening at the same time in that region. Sure. And I guess it's processes like this, which is why you always hear um, scientists talking about how connected the, you know, every natural system is. So, you know, that's really cool. Absolutely. My project really started in the coastal ocean. And then I said, oh, I just want to like look at the river. And then I think we need to go up to the lake. And so it sort of expanded to look at what's connected and what's happening and how all of these things are sort of contributing together to the big picture. Okay, um, I have some. I have some. I have some questions. Which, um, but you know, I'm here to ask the the, the, the stupid questions. So, <laughs> I hope you don't mind. Um, so, when you say there's gases building up in the lake, like when it's frozen over, or I guess when it's not frozen over as well, what's creating those? Is that just biological like respiration and stuff? So there are a few different things that could be happening, and I only look at part of that whole system. Um, but in terms of the gases that I measure, I'm looking at carbon dioxide. And I also measure methane with some collaborators at University of British Columbia. So we have sort of this uh, link uh, with them as well. And over the winter season, a lot of the organic matter that's been built up over the summer is remineralized or respired and becomes CO2 again. Um, and that just has nowhere to go. And so it ends up accumulating in the water column. Uh, it's also possible that there are gases generated in the sediments, um, but that's not something that I've done a lot of work around. So I can't answer that directly. Um, but that's another possibility. Gases like methane can be generated in the sediments and then released into um, the water column as well. Okay. And you must be seeing in real time quite a lot of change, I suppose, maybe even from 
like from year to year with are you seeing like shorter winters or you know is there less ice up there and does that mean the lakes emit more or like with climate change what does that how does that factor in what's happening (laughs) because of the climate change (laughs) so it's interesting because um it's hard to know based on my study alone because I I've done field seasons up there 2017, 2018, 2019. So I haven't done, you know, a long-term study to look at what's happening over time. So I wouldn't be the best person to ask about, you know, long-term trends in that area. But if we think about in general what's happening in Arctic regions, you're getting potentially earlier breakup seasons, earlier melt seasons in the spring, later freeze up seasons in the fall. So you're extending that open water period over, you know, the summer months. And one of the big things um, to think about in terms of change is when you have seasonal ice present, that's a barrier, an imperfect barrier, because there's still, you know, processes that happen across ice. But if you think of it as a barrier that's preventing most um, gas movement, then you end up changing the period of time that that barrier is present. You might change the timing of year when um, the melt season is happening and when you're breaking up that barrier. And so that could change things like when um, different processes are happening, when you have connection between the water and the air. And then you've got all sorts of other factors happening like when does daylight return to that region, for example, and then when does uh, biology start photosynthesizing and drawing down carbon, um, and how might that align with when the ice is on and the ice is off, and that sort of thing. So the whole system is is quite dynamic. Um, you could expect things like if, you know, at some point far in the future, you're not fully capping those lakes with ice or perhaps the ice is on for a shorter time, maybe less gas would accumulate. And so you might be changing how that system works, where the gases are accumulating, where they are at what time, uh, when things are connected or not. In my study area, the river freezes completely to the bottom in the winter. And so over the winter, the lake is severed from the ocean. That connection is completely severed. Um, And so you end up having this large pulse of gases released at the beginning of spring, which is a really dynamic and exciting time to be in the field. Um, and at that time of year, you can certainly see a large change, you know, even in a matter of hours, a matter of days. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fascinating. Like you say, it's so, it's so dynamic. It must be really <laughs> to get a holistic picture is, is, is tricky to get your head around. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you go about measuring this kind of stuff? Like what in the like in your field, what do you what are you measuring and how do you do that? Yeah, so I use a, a variety of different techniques. In the field, I use both sensors as well as uh, collecting water samples that get brought back to the lab. So on a typical field day, if I'm going to the river, for example, I will have a handheld probe that measures things like pH, dissolved oxygen, temperature, conductivity, um, those types of parameters. And so I get instant feedback on, you know, what's going on here in the water. And then I'm also collecting um, water samples that I bring back to my lab. And we're set up in, in the geography department in my particular group to measure dissolved inorganic carbon um, in the water. And so to do that, you add some acid to the water and that 
bubbles off or forces out all of your CO2 as you change the pH and you capture that in a gas detector and look at how much total inorganic carbon was in that sample. And then we can also do titrations to measure total alkalinity in the sample. And we look at some other parameters as well, some isotopes and things like that to understand mixing of different waters and uh, what's happening there. And then if I'm working in the ocean setting, things change a little bit. I'll use an instrument called a CTD, which is a conductivity temperature depth instrument. And so it's a series of different sensors on an instrument that you lower through the water column and you can get a profile of all of these parameters. So it will give you a look at not just what's happening at particular depths, but how that changes all the way to the bottom of the ocean in that particular spot. And then we lower down a Niskin bottle, which is essentially a cylinder with open ends and you drop a weight on a line and it hits um, an, a little anchor that causes it to shut. And so you can lower it down to a particular depth and then grab water from that specific depth and bring it up to the surface and sample water from you know the bottom or the surface or somewhere in between. And then we can do the same measurements on those water samples in the lab as well. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I love these like nifty things that <laughs> scientists have in the field. Yeah, that's so good. Did I read something about a uh, robotic kayak? Was that what you were working on or some colleagues? Yeah, some colleagues uh, did a robot robotic kayak. So there's uh, the UBC folks, um, Kara Manning and others, and I'm on one of the papers with them as well. They have uh, the kayak belongs to, it's called the Jet Yak, I believe, or the Chem Yak. It belongs to Woods Hole, I think. And they borrowed it and brought it up and they um, drove it around the same estuary where I work. And so they were able to measure a much more continuous data stream from that robotic um kayak than we would do if we're taking, you know, individual point samples. And there's also a lot of safety concern. Like typically when I'm working in a field, I will either be going out in a small boat if it's open water season and measuring something in the water, or if it's frozen, I can go out on the sea ice or the lake ice and we can auger a hole in the ice and, and sample uh, that way. And that's actually, even though it can be really cold, that's the easiest way because you're not drifting around. Um, but when, especially when you're in these transition seasons, like the breakup season, it can be a real challenge to measure things safely because perhaps the ice is not safe to travel on anymore, but it's too hazardous for a boat yet. And so if you have something like their robotic instrument, um, you can be collecting things where a person may not be able to um, go out and sample. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nifty. <laughs> Can I ask you about um, your field seasons then? Um, yeah, and absolutely. Just some of the experiences you've had on your field site. Did you? So you've done. You said three seasons there, and was that always in, always in the same place? Or it um, is always yeah, in the same place. Um, so I've I've done three different years, but I've I've sort of had different focus, or I guess the focus has evolved over time, and I have um, added different sites and stations, and then also tried to capture different times of year. So the first year I went up in 2017, I went up in the open water season. And that was really my introduction to, to working in the field in that type of setting going on the research vessels, I got to go on a larger research vessel than the small boat, you know, we would typically go around in the bay in, um, and get a feel for how all of that works and sample sort of the flagship stations 
uh, for my team and our collaborators in the coastal ocean, and then also making trips to the river and starting that river sampling program with the help of a lot of my team and mentors and, and collaborators. And then after that initial season, I decided that I really wanted to understand the breakup time of year in more detail because something really interesting was happening happening at that time of year. And so in later seasons, I was going up in um, earlier in the year, in May, late May, early June, um, rather than the open water season, which is more August timeline. So that I could capture that initial um, pulse of gases coming out in the spring. And then um, I also returned sort of later in, in the summer in one of those years to try to understand what was happening late in the season at the end of, of August. So trying to get a feel for the range of seasons. And then we're very fortunate that there is a research station located in Cambridge Bay. It's the Canadian High Arctic Research Station, which call, is also called CHARS. So you might be familiar or have heard the acronym. And so we can have folks um, operating there essentially year round um, usually we have people from our team coming and going at different times, although our field seasons are typically focused from April to September, but we also have team members, um, research technicians who are locals in the town who can do sampling for us at other times of year, which gives us a coverage, a data coverage that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Okay, nice. Oh, I'm just looking at a picture of um, the research station there. It's quite um, established and it looks really nice. <laughs> yeah, it's an it's a fairly new um, it's fairly new building. I won't quote the date on it because I don't know off the top of my head, but it has nice accommodations for for researchers, and we have you know we're able to access um, sort of a a a maintenance building space where we can do our field prep and um, be able to come and go and uh, loan vehicles from them and that sort of thing so we can get around the landscape. And yeah, it's it's quite um, helpful to have that available uh, compared to other, you know, types of field work where if you don't bring it with you, it's, it's not there. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what's it like up there, like the environment and the landscape? And So that particular area is like a lowland tundra. It's rocky um, and and pretty flat. There is a mountain, one mountain, Mount Pelly, uh, near the lake where I work that you can see sort of standing up in the landscape. Um, but a lot of it is just sort of undulating tundra. Um, it's very beautiful in the spring. Uh, all the flowers um, come out. There's like saxifrage blooms, beautiful magenta kind of purple color flower, lots of yellow flowers and different things. Um, so I, I really enjoy the spring because you can see all these wonderful um, flowers popping up as the, as the spring melt happens. Um, and then lots of water. The landscape's got all these little lakes all over it. Really beautiful. Sometimes we get to um, do some helicopter trips for the different work that my team does. And so you really get a feel for sort of the expanse of the tundra and, and all of those little lakes and how they're connected um, and how the little streams sort of um, go across the landscape. And a lot of streams are seasonal, so they'll just be flowing during the, the meltwater when there's lots of snow melt. And then those streams are dry later in the, in the summer uh, until the following year. And then the coastal ocean is very beautiful. The bay itself is sort of sheltered from 
um, the larger straits as you move out into the archipelago. And so Cambridge Bay is located on Victoria Island. So it's actually on an island, um, not connected to, to the mainland of Canada, but in the winter season when there's sea ice, you know, folks who live there are traveling can, can be traveling across the ice to get to the mainland or do other activities, access other areas, um, for, for their, um, subsistence and, and other things that they're doing. It sounds great. And it, it sounds beautiful. And I mean, it sounds like really good field work. We've been like, you get to do lots of different things and helicopters as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> that sounds really cool. Okay. Um, you mentioned just then, um, that you, there are, uh, local people who help you do the research like year round when you say local do you, are they like indigenous people you're collaborating with um so it depends on um it depends on when we're working the community itself it has a mostly inuit people who live there um nunavut is is a territory that is of the inuit and um but we so we've had field assistants who are inuit and also who are non-indigenous and we also have uh, worked a little bit with the Arctic College because they run an environmental technician program. So if we stay in the loop with what they're up to, we can hire folks that are graduates of their program. So, um, yeah. So that's how that typically works. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> guess that kind of leads me on to um the next thing i wanted to talk to you about which is like science communication and stuff like that and um you know getting the word out there to the general public because uh you came i mean your research is incredible <laughs> it sounds great but you came to my attention uh polar times attention when you won the apex poetry competition um so i just wanted to ask you about some of your the poetry that you do and you know, like what inspires you and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been, I've been writing for a while now. I think, you know, since I was a child, one of my, my dreams was always to be an author. Um, I've always loved libraries, bookstores, that sort of thing. Um, and I didn't really realize that I was going to be a poet or work in poetry. It seemed like whenever I would try to write something literary, a poem, was the form that I kept gravitating to. And so eventually I, I thought, oh, you know, I better spend some time on this and uh, I really explore what this might be because I think there's a lot of, of fun fun to be had here and also um, a way to understand the world around me in a different way than the science that I might do in my, in my day job or in my studies. And certainly the science I've done really informs the poetry that I work on, I mean, just in, in a general sense, if I think about the topics that I gravitate towards, the natural world appears a lot in my work. Um, I like to talk about geology. I'll often use some scientific terms. Um, and so I did dedicate a lot of time when I was working as a geoscientist before I came back to school to take some courses through continuing education and writing and to explore what that might look like to get some uh, professional mentoring and understand sort of the basics and the fundamentals and what I might want to do with this craft. And I've been persisting um, for about a decade, I would say, with writing. I mostly do poetry. I also like to, to dabble in essays. Um, and that's been a little bit more of a focus lately, uh, sort of poetic essays, I guess. 
And I've also recently started instructing as well. So I teach writing workshops at a um, institution in Calgary. So sort of establishing myself in the literary in the literary field here, but bringing the science into that work a lot as well. That's so cool. I don't think I've, I, I'm, I really like science communication. Obviously I'm trying to do this podcast, which I hope is a, a good form of it, but I've never come across like science and poetry being put together before. And, and maybe that's just me not moving in the right fields, but it's, uh, yeah. Did you, how is that, how is that kind of received really by other people, by the public and your peers and stuff like that? Is it, is it unusual or is it, um, I guess I, I, I live within a narrow band of, of what I've been able to read and explore. But from what I've seen, I think a lot of science themes get explored in literary works. Certainly, uh, you know, folks are always writing about social justice issues, which include things like the climate emergency and climate justice and, and all types of things. But it often doesn't get branded as, as science because it's approached from, you know, a literary perspective. So the topics are certainly there. I think the deep understanding is also there. But I think what's unique in terms of science poetry is um, the angle of setting out an intention to sort of fuse these things together. And instead of taking a scientific concept that's already finished and then try to communicate it through poetry is creating something new by doing both at the same time. And to look at how can I use poetic observation to influence how I see my field site, for example, or how can I look at my data differently if I'm thinking about how I might visualize a particular data set or process in a poem. And so that is not just a one direction uh, communication. It's more of how are those, these two things working together and how do I create something new that uses and values all of the inputs equally. That's so, that, that's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. I've never really, I mean, yeah, that's just really cool. I don't really know what to say. <laughs> um, like, so do you, um, who is your, do you have a target audience in mind when you're writing science poems? It depends on the poem, I guess. Uh, if I'm writing a general poem that includes science elements, typically I am working within the literary space first. So, uh, you know, I've written pieces where they are very literary and um, would be targeted at, let's say, uh, a literary journal for a place where it might be published and then accessed by people. So I'm primarily going to capture that literary audience, but it's bringing people to the Bay of Fundy, for example, and talking about geology there and, and science concepts. When I write something like um, the Spring Pulse poem that was for the Polar Poetry Contest or Ocean Acidification, which is another science poem that has been getting some attention lately, those were really targeted at bringing a literary perspective into the sciences. And so I was kind of going the opposite direction in that case. But my goal was to access sort of both of those spheres of people, the science communities that I'm operating in and the literary, and maybe have a conversation between those different viewpoints and bring people together. And I think particularly the ocean acidification poem that I wrote um, 
really had that discussion going on, which was exciting because I was able to see, you know, real time on social media, people from two different parts of my life that normally wouldn't be in the same room having a discussion about climate change together or ocean acidification together, talking about this poem together. So that was really, really exciting to watch. That's fantastic. It almost sounds like a, like an untapped like resource that not many people have thought about before to, um, you know, as a way of getting the word out there about science and things like climate change, which are particularly important. So yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> would you like to, would you like to read one of your poems now? Is that something you'd be okay with doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll read the the spring pulse one first, if that would be okay. That's the one that was in the, the apex polar poetry contest. And I think you'll see based on talking about my research uh, study area and those different environments where they show up in this poem. And we can always chat about that later if you want. Okay. Spring pulse. Ice-capped tundra lake, a freckle on the lowlands. Her liquid body saturated with three seasons of vivid dreams, thick with afterlife. An awakening, the first trickle. Drip, drip. A warm stretch, her full lungs let go, emptying into the river. A sigh that sweeps all the way to the coast. Ocean arms open, ready to receive it. A yearly cache dissolved, now dispersed. Summer waves whipped long fetch, churned up and wild. One last exhale toward the sky before she tucks herself in and starts to grow a lump in her throat until it almost hurts. That's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Can you tell me the story? Yeah, so it's it's really trying to capture that seasonal variation that I see in my field site. And so in the beginning of the poem, that ice-capped lake is really the overwinter conditions of Grainer Lake um, and, um, and Freshwater Creek, which is frozen to the ground at that point. And things are accumulating in that water. Um, and then in the spring, we have a very gradual start to the melt season. But as soon as you get running water, you know, that energy just runs away with itself and, and melt happens very quickly after it is initiated. And that pulse of gases gets released into the river. And I can see that coming from the lake, I can detect it in the river, even with that handheld sensor that I mentioned, I can see the oxygen dropping in the river water over, you know, hours to days as that pulse of gases is passing by. Uh, and then it's discharged into the ocean. And at that time, the ocean still has sea ice on uh, small areas sort of opening up around the mouth of the, the river where you have that moving water, but the bay and all of the greater area is still frozen. And so you end up with this high CO2 water flowing out, going under the sea ice um, into the bay. And then at the end of the poem, where in the summer, we've got the open water, the lake becomes fully mixed. Um, and then uh, the, you know, we have evaporation, the water levels dropping, starts to get colder again in the fall, and then we freeze over and start the process over again. So it's really supposed to evoke this seasonal change and cycle 
um, and all of those different seasons that I've been able to visit the field and, and enjoy understanding how that system works and just observing and appreciating what's happening in those different environments. Sure. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, uh, you you do definitely get a sense of the the cyclical nature of, um, you know, not just the seasons, but maybe like the water cycle as well, and then your research and the carbon cycling and everything, just these processes moving through the environment and constantly without us, you know, ever really. I mean, you must think about them all the time, but I guess no one else really does very often. So yeah, that's it's really nice. <laughs> Would you like to uh, would you like to read ocean acidification for us as well? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a little bit of a longer one, um, but uh, I think I think it's worth reading the full piece instead of an excerpt, so you get the feel for the the whole narrative. If that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Ocean acidification. The other carbon problem is more insidious. Is almost invisible to the naked eye. Is microscopic at its onset poking tiny holes in the base of the food chain, is propagating, is dismantling, is threatening to undermine systems in their entirety, is manifesting around river mouths and flaring up here and there in ocean waters at this time and that time, a seasonal state moving toward a permanence, exacerbated by cold water, exacerbated by changes to the hydrologic cycle, exacerbated by stratification, exacerbated by indifference. Vinegar dissolving carbonate scale off of shower tiles, of faucets, of the inside of kettles, without elbow grease, a little bit of acid goes a long way. A little bit of acid goes a long way. A little goes a long way. A little bit goes away. The other carbon problem is chewing away at the edges, creating an irregular halo, inhibiting, is pulling away molecule by molecule, is leaving a thinned legacy, a vulnerability, or sometimes a resilience passed down to the next if there is a next generation, because at some point all of the energy gets used up, just trying to build this tiny body, a capsule for this tiny body, made slight by its own home. Some of us can adopt Some of us have the ability to modify the chemistry of the water adjacent to our beings. Some of us will become a whisper. Some of us can only whisper about the tiny gaps we will leave that will grow and grow and grow until something collapses we tried our best to warn you. The other problem is irregular, inhibiting, leaving a legacy of vulnerability. If there is a next generation, at some point, energy gets used up, trying to build this tiny body, a capsule for this tiny body, made slight by its own. Some of us adapt, some of us modify the water, our beings become a whisper, some of us can only whisper, we will leave and until something collapses, we tried our best. Irregular, inhibiting, a legacy, a vulnerability. If there is a next, this tiny body, a capsule, Made slight, some of us become a whisper, can only whisper, we will leave. This tiny body made slight, a whisper. Okay, nice, yeah. <laughs> I've got I've got quite a lot of questions about this one, I suppose, because 
maybe first for the listeners, I'm not sure we've had an episode where anyone's talked about ocean acidification. So could you just quickly uh, like give us a rundown on what that actually that process actually is, just scientifically? Yeah, absolutely. So you know we've been talking about carbon dioxide in water, the fact that it it exists dissolved in natural waters, and so the key part of ocean acidification is that when the carbon dioxide molecule molecule interacts with the water molecule, it forms a weak acid. And so when the ocean or other waters take up carbon dioxide, you're actually lowering the pH of those waters because you're creating a weak acid with with that dissolution process. And as we've emitted more CO2 to the atmosphere, the ocean has been a big sink for anthropogenic CO2. And so if you know that you know famous curve that shows CO2 in the atmosphere increasing over time, there are also curves that show you know, that that CO2 is being taken up by the ocean in some areas, significant amount of it, and that at the same time that that's happening, the pH in the ocean waters are lowering as you produce that weak acid. And so it's not, you know, saying the ocean is an acid, it's more the process of acidifying by lowering the pH. And so even if you still have a pH that is, you know, seven or higher, um, is that impacting the animals and the biology that's living there because you're changing the conditions and you're stressing them by lowering that um, that pH level there. Sure. It's kind of, um, I guess, hidden consequence of climate change, which maybe isn't discussed as much to mm-hmm. in, like in the public than as many, than, you know, melting ice caps and rising sea levels. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's often called the other carbon problem because right. it's something that's certainly less visible than some of the other big climate impacts that we're seeing and are being talked about often in you know, media and public discourse, especially outside of the science community, when you talk about um, what does climate change look like, what's happening, you know, ocean acidification isn't always uh, the most popular or visible topic on those lists that would be sort of general awareness. Sure. And it is bad news. So if you're a coral with a nice calcium carbonate, you know, exoskeleton, or if there's people doing research um, at my uni, actually, I think they're doing like the effects of um, acidification on organisms and how it changes their fertility and behavior and all kinds of stuff. Um, so yeah, so it's it's definitely definitely important and worth talking about. What was the what was the what was the motive behind um, this poem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this poem this poem has had a great journey over this year, and I think the original idea was I wanted to try to create a poem that on the page performed a process. And I know you don't get that effect with me just reading the poem to you, but if if folks go and look at the poem, you know, you can see it on Watch Your Head, which is an online uh, literary journal where the poem was first published. And you can also see it in a multimedia clip where you get the visual and I can share those links with you. Um, you can see that it is a circle. It's a series of circles. And the first circle is an intact circle And as you move through the poem, those circles dissolve, essentially, and it starts around the edges. And then it, it sort of blasts everything apart down near the end of the poem, and you end up with these small isolated pockets. And it's really paralleling the narrative in the poem, where we talk about how this process starts, how things are vulnerable, where the change might be subtle and be beginning, but not detected. 
and some of those warning signs. And so I wanted to play with the form of the poem on the page and see if I could create something that would essentially act out the story. And that Mm -hmm. was my initial idea for the piece. And then everything sort of came together around that. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend people going and 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 reading it for sure. Yeah, um, I definitely yeah, I really get a sense of I suppose fragility of like the ocean, and when you read it, so <laughs> that's what I took away from it. <laughs> if that uh, means anything, um, yeah. And you said it's been on a little journey. This was um, this was it featured at COP twenty six, didn't it? Quite it recently. was. Yeah, it was in the um, in the virtual ocean pavilion at COP26. And so I was able to join for the virtual open ocean pavilion um, kickoff event and do a live reading of the poem. And then the video was available in the exhibition space um, via the International Alliance to Combat Ocean Acidification booth for people to view throughout COP. And then of course the video was also hosted by the Ocean Foundation um, in partnership with MIOPAR, uh, which is a Canadian organization, stands for uh, Marine Environmental Observation, Prediction and Response Network of Centers of Excellence. And they have an ocean acidification community of practice, and then also the International Alliance to Combat Ocean Acidification. And so um, those were the three sort of science and policy partners I worked with to make the multimedia clip um, for the poem which happened after it was initially published in Watch Your Head. And that multimedia clip is available all the time for free for people to use as a science communication tool or to view and share. And that was the one that was present at COP. Sure. And we will put the link in the bio of this episode so oh, people awesome. can find that it great. easily. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> So you, this poem you wrote that it was when you were writing it, it was designed to be like read on the page, I suppose, to get this full of full effect. But do you yeah. perf- do you do a lot of performing? Do you ever write poems that are purely for like to be spoken, or do you enjoy like do you go to events and stuff and like do readings and anything like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I love reading, and um, when I I read my poems, um, I enjoy sharing them. Um, at events, and I do participate in that type of thing. This, um, you're correct in saying this one was designed to to be seen on the page, but I also wanted to make the story a standalone story that could be understood as well, because I want to make it accessible to a range of different people. Um, and so I was thinking about, you know, how do we make multiple entry points to this particular piece? So if someone wants to read it on the page and can read it on the page, they can do that and see that part of the story, but that it's also accessible in other ways. So people can enjoy it, even if that's not possible. And then when I'm writing poems, I actually write poems often by speaking them out loud. And I, I always write them on text or a notebook. Like I'm not a spoken word poet that memorizes pieces and performs them, but the pieces that I write are meant to be read out loud. And oftentimes my editing process is just reading them out loud and seeing how it sounds and changing it around and sort of writing it by ear. And so I really do focus on what is the musicality? What is the mood I'm trying to convey? What word choices do I need to do that? Where do I need to pause? Where do I need to, um, to go? And so often when I publish poems and literary magazines as well, if they're hosted online and they have the option to send a recording, I always do that so people can 
a listen as well as read or just listen if if that's the preferred way for them to receive poetry. Sure, yeah. Do you think there's a like a niche in science communication for science poetry? Do you know any other science poets who are like doing similar things or I would say there's um there's definitely a niche and there are people out there. I think we're not really well connected. Um there's a group that I've interfaced with recently called Paleopones and a researcher that I used to work with as a student, uh, we were interns together, um, works in paleontology, and she connected us um, based on a different poem that I wrote about our sort of working working in a microfossil lab way back in time. Uh, and so they host poetry and uh, about paleontology, and they ask poets to write little blog posts about the inspiration of things for their work. So that would be one example. There's also a field in poetry called geopoetics, and it's really looking at space and place and land and often environmental um, relation to space and, and poetry. And finding a poem by a poet named Eric Nagrain, who's out of Arizona, I believe, in a journal on... Um, that was featuring some geopoetics work was a light bulb moment for me when I realized, oh, there are people actively working on this type of poetry in the poetry community as well. And so then I started looking up, you know, who are some of his collaborators and what type of poems are they writing and and where can I find more geopoetry and more eco-poetry and that sort of thing. But I think it's something that hasn't been maximized within the science community. Oftentimes, you know, we do our study and then it's like, okay, we need to communicate this. How do we convert it into some kind of other form to share the results? Whereas poetry itself could be used as a method within the science work um, to produce something new rather than just convey uh, the results of a different study or a different project that's self-contained. Okay, I see. So it's not purely about just, um, you know, getting the word out there. That's not the sole purpose. Um, for doing. But some people, you know, some people may want to do that. And that can be a great way to have fun communicating your project as well. So I guess it depends on what your goal is. Um, sure. I mean, I would love to host a, a workshop for scientists where people write poems about their research studies. And maybe that would be, you know, how would you communicate what you've done through a poem. So that might be more of a straight communication tool, Um, but there'd be different ways to do it depending on what your goal is. Yeah. Well, if you ever host that workshop, I would be interested. (laughs) Awesome. First customer. (laughs) Yeah. You should have thought about it before and I could have tried something. (laughs) I'm not a poet or a writer. So (laughs) yeah. What kind of, um, what kind of feedback do you get from the public in when, um, who, when you like, whenever they come across it, I suppose. I suppose just because I'm thinking if it's, if communicating with the public was your sole aim, which you say it's not always, um, it's just not a, something which many people consume. Maybe I don't feel like many people in the public consume a lot of poetry. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe it's quite confronting, quite different. Um, they're not sure yeah. what to take home from it. Like what's your experience? I think, especially with a poem like Ocean Acidification as an example, having those different entry points built in really helps because 
you know, a scientist who works on ocean acidification is going to have a, a much different interaction with that poem than a scientist who is working in a different field or someone who lives in the North, for example, or someone who doesn't know anything about science, but is very involved in the literary community or someone who knows both or, you know, any combination of all of those things. Um, but I think allowing it to be a piece of art where someone could read it and listen. And even at a superficial level where someone might be like, wow, that was nice. I learned something. It made me feel a certain way. I think I should pay attention or maybe learn a little bit more about what ocean acidification is. That's amazing. Um, the poem has, has done work there. Um, and someone else might really get into the details and say, how is process represented here? And, you know, when I made this particular poem, I sent it to a few colleagues first and said, read this and tell me if you think, and these are people uh, in particular, one woman who works in ocean acidification, does this look correct to you? Because what I didn't want to happen was a scientist to read it and say, oh yeah, well, that's nice, but you know, you use the wrong word here. The so wrong idea. Yeah. Is, yeah. Did, did this person really know what they're talking about? Or I didn't want someone to get pulled out of it because, you know, there were little speed bumps like that. So it was important sure. for me to be accurate, but also have it uh, as a, a piece where you can take the details you want and you don't have to consume all of it. You can, you can just take it on a mood level if you want, and that would be fine um, as well. That's interesting. So you're saying it was almost peer reviewed <laughs> before it was published. <laughs> I definitely checked with a few people first because I was like, well, you know, uh, if I put this out there, I want to make sure that um, that scientists feel like it accurately, accurately represents what yeah. we're doing. Um, I want it to be helpful. And I want people to feel like they might want to use it as a communication tool. And for this particular piece, when it first went out in uh, the journal, watch your head. That was like a whirlwind 24 hours because um, that particular journal is online. And I was really excited about that because I wanted it to be easy to share. That was one of the main goals was how do we make this so that people can talk about it and share it easily. Um, and all kinds of folks started talking about it. And it was through a few of these bigger ocean organizations like Neopar pushing out the content to their networks on social media, where it accessed a lot of scientists in different places in the world. Um, it accessed the literary community through the journal and sort of my networks and those people's connected networks. And people were really excited about this issue that they didn't know about before, or they had only heard about in passing. They wanted to learn more about it. Scientists were sending me direct messages saying it made them emotional. It made them very emotional. It made them mm -hmm. feel um, very passionate and concerned and connected with their work. And then I had a lot of scientists looking at this piece where, you know, that scientist probably won't read my dissertation, but they read my poem. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah. you're accessing people through an emotional connection. And I think that's a really unique part of working in in poetry or other art forms as well. It gives you that permission to just be free with the emotional aspect of it. Sure. And I think that is why poetry and maybe probably any kind of art, it's so like 
should be put with science. It's the same. It's <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why people treat them as two so separate things. All right, that brings us to the last part of the podcast. We call it the Polar Plug. And here you have just a few minutes to talk about something, anything you like that you would like to share with the general public. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate the, the opportunity to be able to do that. Um, I'll give a quick nod to two projects that I have coming out sometime next year. I have a essay that will be published in the journal Arctic, and it includes two original poems that were written based on uh, my fieldwork and also a short essay that goes with those poems talking about fieldwork, poetics, uh, observation, and how being a poet and having a poetic lens influences how I do science and how I see my field sites and my research. And then I will have another article, which is not specifically uh, polar, but is still related to science poetry coming out in Geo Humanities. And it looks at creating poetry from river flow data. So that one is a data focused um, hybrid science uh, poem project that I'll be excited to share with people in the new year. Oh, that sounds incredible. Sorry, just say that last phrase again. That's a, a data science pluvial. <laughs> that particular project is is a hybrid of data, um, the scientific data, uh, poetry. It uses river flow data, and I've generated constraints from the poem from that data. So the actual scientific data is embedded into the poem. So it's in a sense a bit of a data visualization through. Uh, a poem so that one has a visual aspect to it as well oh that sounds really cool i can't wait to see it and both of them sound great sadly that brings us to the end of another episode of polar times thank you so much everyone who is listening thanks for coming back to our little podcast uh please don't forget to like rate and subscribe and leave us a review if you uh feel like doing so um we're available as you know on all places to get your, your podcast shops from and um, yes, if you'd like to get in contact with us, then you can do so. You can email thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. Uh, once more, that email is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. It's all lowercase altogether. Um, and yeah, or you can tweet Apex at polar underscore research. Uh, so yeah, so the other remains is for me to thank my marvellous guest for today, Sam Samantha Jones. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Ah, it's been a pleasure. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.